We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. I guess uh, this must be the last Sunday in November, isn't it? So here we are, grateful to be here. Let's open our Bibles again this morning to Song of Solomon. Now in the third chapter, Song of Solomon chapter 3. This chapter begins with what the Bible, my Bible has in its little heading, which is not inspired, a troubled night. And I think what's happening here is that you have before the wedding itself of this, uh, these two lovers, you have the young woman who is having a very troubled dream. And she gets to be very concerned about her relationship with her love. It says in chapter 3, By night on my bed I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city in the streets and in the squares, and I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me. I said, Have you seen the one I love? Scarcely I had passed by them when I found the one I love. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I charge you, daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant's fragrant powders. Behold, it is Solomon's couch, with sixty valiant men around it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh, because of fear in the night. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. That's the, the elevated chair, perhaps carried by some of these men. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. So he's he's actually coming to fetch her now for the wedding. So it's a nice scene as unfolding. But we'll leave that uh, for now, and we will turn our attention back to the book of Genesis, please. Genesis. And uh, we're in chapter 15 now. I hope that you have your Bible and will turn there and follow along. Be uh, kind of an active participant here in our preaching, so that I'm not just talking and you're just sitting there like a bump on a log, but you're... (laughs) Yeah, you're, you're active, you're participating in your mind, you're asking questions of the text, wondering what I might say about the next verse, or um, if you have a question that arises, that you can bring that afterwards. But we're in Genesis chapter 15. Up to this point, we've seen in the book of Genesis a kind of broad overview of early world history, and then we focus quickly in by the end of chapter 11 and 12 onto a particular person named Abram who later became Abraham. And uh, he was promised by God, or actually called by God, to leave his homeland, which he did with his extended family, and uh, stopped over in Haran, and then came back uh, the rest of the way, or came the rest of the way to the promised land as we know it. He observed that land that God was to give to him. And uh, then in chapters 13 and 14, we saw some major drama unfold in his life. Um, I guess uh, maybe you could be thankful with me for a life that has little drama. You know, you might say, well, I don't have a great story to tell, 
that's all right. Don't ask God for a great story to tell. Just a nice, quiet life, lived in godliness for him, and uh, that's a good thing. So, But he had some drama. Uh, you had the Lot uh, making a poor decision about moving himself towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and that ended up badly because there was an ongoing war between uh, city-state kings, and uh, Lot got caught up in that, was kidnapped. Uh, God, in that, upheld the covenant that he had made with Abram, protected Abram and his family member on, uh, for the sake of Abram. And, uh, and by the way, that just reminds me, think of like First, um, first Corinthians chapter... Seven, is it seven? Yes, it's seven. I think where the scriptures tell us that if a family has a believing one believing spouse and not the other, what does that do for the kids? It's a good benefit for them. It sanctifies them. It sets them apart. In other words, it protects them from the the onslaught of you know the full on kind of onslaught that the world throws at families. Can you imagine families with no Christian influence? either father nor mother. You, can you imagine the families where there's no even no father or no mother? Uh, kids that are left on their own or their parents perish and they have nowhere to turn? A very, very bad situation. But, you know, Lot was protected by virtue of Abram being his family member, even though he made some boneheaded decisions as we talked about last time. Uh, God protected him on or for the sake of Abram, his servant, his friend. And then also last time we learned about a very biblically important but kind of shadowy figure called Melchizedek. And we won't have any more to say about him uh, for now. But we turn to chapter 15 with that background or review. And uh, we see in chapter 15 that uh, there is a real tension going on in Abram's life. But before he can say anything about it, God already knew what he was thinking just like he knows what you're thinking right now. You can't, there's no force field that can keep God out of your head. All right? He knows everything that you're thinking, everything you do, everything you say, all the attitudes that you hold. And he knew what Abram was thinking. And in a prophetic vision to him, he assured Abram of three things. Read with me verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision in a prophetic vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So first of all, he tells Abram, and we don't even know exactly what the issue is just yet. We will get to that in verse 2. <clears throat> but he assured Abram of, of three things. Number one, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I mean, suppose that you're in his situation. Your nephew has just been kidnapped you had to face uh, complications from a long-term war that has been in your region. Remember, we talked about this being over a dozen years in the making, these city-states going at it with each other and tributes and rebellion and so on. Um, you know, you, there are sexual predators out to get anyone they can in your neighborhood. Where do I get that from? Well, chapter 19 where it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and the character of those cities, just not that much farther into the future from here. They're certainly conducting themselves that way here, even as they will be in chapter 19. Uh, and suppose that you're really, in addition, and here's where the issue is kind of heading, really, really wanting to have a family and, and needed to, in Abram's case, to experience the fulfillment, full fulfillment of God's promises, but you could not have children. Honestly, ask yourself, given all of that going on in your life, would I be afraid if that were the case? Would you? I know some of you are you know, more stoic and some of you are more kind of transparent about your emotions. Some of you are more given to fear. Others, you know, very strong and not going to be afraid. But you probably have some level of fear and angst in your soul, especially those of you that are given to that sort of thing. But God commands Abram not to be afraid. Don't fear. Don't fear. And we think of other texts of Scripture that tell us to not fear. Why? Because God is with us. He will not leave us nor forsake us. I will not fear what man will do to me, Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, he tells Joshua the same thing. I will be with you. 
And that is the great cause for uh, boldness and courage. But he gives two other statements here in this text. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your protector. That's what that metaphor of shield means. As for God, his way is perfect. Does anybody remember? Who all here would remember uh, Pastor and Mrs. Sachs? How they would often say that verse, Psalm 1830, which is also in David's writings in, in Samuel. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is perfect or tried. He is a shield to all those who trust in him. You take that and just file it because you'll need it sometime. You will need it. God is your shield, a shield to all who trust in him. And uh, let me turn to the Psalms again in Psalm 7. I'll just share a couple of thoughts here because it's useful for us to review uh, God's character and his protection of us. Psalm 7:10. the Bible says, my defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. Uh, my defense is, is in the Lord. He is my rock, my salvation. He's not going to leave you. He's not fickle. He's not come and go like some of us uh, are or, or were in our, our former lives. And, and sometimes, even if the circumstances require, you know how he will protect you? We don't see this, but he will even send an angel or two or several if he must. Angels are ministering spirits. Hebrews 1.14 tells us, sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. Psalm 91, listen to this. This is just a tremendous portion of Scripture. We read this last, uh, I think, a couple of years ago together in the church, but I want to remind you of it in Psalm 91. It says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and fortress. Not just a shield, my friends, but an entire fortress. He is my God, and Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. I didn't write this in my notes, but I just can't help but think of Ephesians in the armor of God. What is the shield? The shield is faith. The shield of faith, that is, which is faith, which is made out of faith. He, his truth, shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Verse 11, I was alluding to this earlier, for he shall give his angels charge over you, to keep you in all your ways. Despite the misuse of that verse by the devil himself in the uh, contest with the Lord Jesus in the temptation in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, this verse does have a good use. Don't misuse it. Verse 12, In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample underfoot. Of course, this in the context of the Mosaic Covenant. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. This is like speaking for God as if he's speaking. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. God is your shield and will protect you. That's why you don't have to be afraid and you must not be afraid. But also, secondly, the second support for this idea or command not to be afraid is found at the end of the verse. God says, I'm your shield and, he says, your exceedingly great reward. God told the Israelites, 
the, sorry, not the Israelites, the uh, Levites, in Numbers 18. You shall have no portion in the land. You'll have no inheritance in the land. You have no, you know, no uh, tribal portion, no division, because they were to be distributed throughout the land of uh, Israel and had various cities and common lands and some farmlands and things they could live off of, but they were distributed throughout. They did not have a specific inheritance. And God said to them, why? For I am your inheritance, he said. You don't have land. You have me. Now tell me, what's better than that? You know, you want your little postage stamp or your little one or two acre plot or your 10 acres or your 100 acres or whatever it is, your little corner of God's vineyard. But some people don't have that. God's ministers in the Old Testament didn't have that because God himself was their inheritance. I wrote on this on my blog some years ago because the idea fascinated me when uh, you read in uh, Lamentations uh, where Jeremiah says that the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. I will hope in him. Now, Jeremiah didn't have much then. Those were the days of the, uh, the siege of Jerusalem and people being uh, taken off into captivity. He himself, Jeremiah, being put into a pit and being kind of a political pawn and in and out and problems. And... But he could say, God is my portion. He's my inheritance. That's what that means. It, it really, it's a metaphor, this idea of portion or reward or inheritance. When it speaks of, our, our, of us and God, it speaks of our relationship to God. He is mine and I am his, particularly in this transient world. Abram being related to God is far better than any possession that he could have, any home, any land, any other thing. In fact, that was greater in value than any spoils that he could have taken. When Remember, he was in that war, that battle in chapter 14. He gave everything that he had recovered away. Some to the young men, uh, put the people back in their cities, gave all the goods back uh, except for a tithe that he gave to Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of righteousness. But he had given it all away. He didn't need all of that to be wealthy before God or to be wealthy, period. You too, if you're a follower of Christ, have an all-surpassing relationship with, with God in Christ. Nothing else compares even if, as we've said, everything is taken away from you, that can't be taken away from you. You still have him. He is, for Abram, the shield and the exceedingly great reward. And I, I'm here to tell you, if, if you share the faith of Abram, then you have those truths that can apply to you as well. They do apply to you. You have him as your shield and your reward. The bottom line is that God would take care of Abram since he's the protector and the reward for Abram, obviously Abram's eyes are going to be fixed on him. Wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you think? I mean, he's just going to say, oh, thanks God, you're my shield. You're my exceedingly great reward, but I'm just going to ignore you for the rest of my life. That's unreasonable. That's irrational. So obviously as believers, we're going to have God as our center focus if we really recognize what he's done for us. Now, if we're dull about this, if we're kind of, you know, our eyes are kind of closed, our ears are stopped up, and we're not recognizing what God is to us as believers, then we're, gonna, we're not going to live right. But now Abram is going to approach or speak to God in this vision, kind of back and forth going on here. And he says in verse 2, Lord God, what will you give me? seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So this is the trouble that Abram had. Abram wasn't as much troubled about all the other things that we said, but about this he was. The idea of a reward induced Abram to ask what God would give him because he had no heir from his body. It's like, you know, it's like you can have everything, but if you don't have someone to share it with, if you have everything but you have no children, that blessing, maybe you understand that idea. 
Without a descendancy, how could God keep most of the promises that he gave in Genesis 12? What were those promises? Do you remember? I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. Well, if I don't have a son, I don't have any children, I'm not blessed, he would say, perhaps. How can I have a great nation follow me if I have no offspring? Thirdly, God promised protection in terms of the blessing and the cursing. And then number four, he promised Abram to be a worldwide blessing. It's probable that Abram's looking at his age. He's looking at Sarah and he's thinking realistically and saying, you know, even though he lived to a great age, do you remember how old he lived, Abram? Anybody have that number in their mind? What's that? Yeah, over 120. I have the number in my head. I forgot to look it up, 175. But he's, he's, he's past having children. Just because you live to 175 doesn't mean that, you know, your wife can have kids until she's 150. Not that she would want to have kids at 150. But he's looking at it realistically and says, the time has passed to have kids. This lack of an heir is a blockade in God's blessing and covenant and thus to Abram's hope. Imagine your hope being tied up in if, if I have to have a child in order for God's promises to be fulfilled to me. We don't have that today, do we? We don't have to have any children. We don't have to have grandchildren. We have to understand his mindset at this time in history. Blessing and hope came through a posterity. To have no children was a curse. You may not have thought about that before, but their hope was not just a future expectation of dwelling in heaven. It was to have a family and a family name carry on in the world so that when you died, your family name did not die you continued on through your descendants in some sense in their mind. Abram's hope was heavily emphasized in this life, not the afterlife. See, the Old Testament, the idea was, look, Psalm 30 verse 9 says, The dust will not praise you, God. The dust will not praise you. I am going to dust. Remember that? Dust to dust, we say, and ashes to ashes. Well, when I go to the grave, my voice is silenced as far as the how it seems in this world. They didn't have the strong attachment to the afterlife that we have because they didn't have the kind of revelation about it that we have. It seemed like it's a far-off place. I don't, it's not a desirable thing to have to go through to die. I'd rather live for 900 years than, than 90 or, or 9. And so his, fo- his focus was a lot in, in this life. We have a small sense of that, but, but also with regard to our our Western individualism, we've lost the kind of collective or solidarity idea with our, our you know, descendants. We just don't have that as much as they did. So we lose the urgency of having children as, as he had. The promised worldwide blessing came through a seed, which is an offspring. And in each uh, of the generations of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, God reiterated to those people in Genesis 22, 26, and 28, in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Acts and Galatians tell us the same thing. In fact, let me just go to, uh, since I'm closest to Acts, I'll go to Acts chapter 3 and uh, the preaching here in the very early church. In Acts 3 and verse 25, Peter says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, turning everyone, in turning every one of you away from your iniquities. Peter there identifies the seed as Jesus. It is in Jesus that this last, that number seven kind of sub-element of the, Moses, of the Abrahamic covenant would come to pass along, through the world, in the world rather. The seed revolves around a single man, Jesus the Messiah, and he becomes the hope for the entire world. It seems certain, however, to Abram, if you see twice, he says, 
that this Eleazar of Damascus was going to be my heir. You know, he was maybe the senior servant in the house, the most faithful man out of all 318 of his servants that were listed before or numbered before. Uh, you know, he was, he was a good fellow, he was, but he was a foreigner. He was not a proper heir. And so God carries on then and tells Abram what's going to happen in verses 4 through 6. Let's read those verses together. Follow along as I read. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one, that's Eleazar, shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So, that is, in the same way, your, shall your descendants be? And he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him, Abram, for righteousness. Now, Abram had already believed God to some extent before this happened. Why? Because God had spoken to him and said, move out of Ur. Go to the land I will show you. And what happened? He obeyed. Faith obeys. We see that. He went to the land of the Canaanites and the Perizzites and a bunch of other ites. We'll see at the end of this chapter, chapter 15. And then God tells him that Eleazar will not be the heir when Abram dies. This is contrary to Abram's best educated guess. I mean, after all, he, he's too old to have kids. He's not going to have a son, he thinks, uh, naturally. But God says, nope, a natural-born son is going to be your heir illustrate just how many people would arise from this air. He takes him outside of his tent and he says, look up at the stars. Just do that sometime. Go out of your little tent, your little abode when it's a clear night and look up at the stars. Go out a little later when it's nice and dark and you can see things well and uh, just start counting. Just start counting. And uh, if you count them all, then uh, we'll send you some pictures from the uh, web telescope and you can keep counting. Uh, the number is not infinite, I'm sure, but it's a very large number. But this is an illustration to Abram. It's not saying that there's going to be as many Jewish people as there are stars in the, in the heavens. It's saying that there's going to be a lot. There will be a lot. There will be a large number of descendants from you, Abram, even though you have zero right now. Millions and millions of Hebrews would come from his line of humanity, from nothing to huge numbers. God delights to do that, by the way. He delights to create great amounts of fruit out of very small things, even impossible situations. You see the number of births in Scripture that are um, miraculous or near miraculous, of course, culminating in the conception in the Virgin of Jesus. But you see this birth, uh, you have others as well. Uh, Hannah, for example, in 1 Samuel, the first couple of chapters. But I want to focus on verse number 6 because it says, and he believed in the Lord. Abram believed God. Now, why did he do that? Well, it arose from his personal knowledge and experience of God. He had seen God's kindness toward him. He had heard of God. He had interacted with God. He experienced God's loving care, His protection, His mercy, His provision, just as recently as chapter 14 with this battle that he had to go out to fetch his nephew Lot back from kidnappers. He had followed God's directions. He had heard God's words. We know that he had offered God's sacrifice several places. He built altars. And this established a trusting relationship between the two of them. Moses, who is the human author of Genesis, is telling us here that Abram at this point had made his decision. He would be a follower of the one true God and he would abandon all those idols that he had experienced earlier in his life. He's reaffirming here if you will. He's, he's, he's thinking, he's hearing God's promise, he's saying it doesn't look possible, but God has promised, I know him, I trust him, I believe in him. I just 
causes me to pause and ask, have you had that kind of faith transaction, if I could say it that way, with God? Have you stopped to think, I don't know what life is going to be like. I don't know necessarily what I'm doing or where I'm headed. But I do know that I'm a sinful person and that God has told me to trust in Him. And I've seen everything that God has done faithfully. He's trustworthy. He's been kind. He's been a provider for me. And I am going to believe in Him. I am going to express my trust in Him and be a follower of Him, abandoning all other followerships, if you will. Now, God has ordained on such a basis the trust relationship. Okay, you can't have a relationship without trust, right? If you trust in God, that's, that's really the establishment of a relationship together between you. You know, when you're in your sin, the Bible says your iniquities have built kind of a wall between us. They have made a, a wall of separation between me and you. But if you confess your sin and trust in Him, then that wall is broken open and you can have in your life a connection with God, a relationship with Him. And God has ordained that on such a basis of trust, He will grant the right standing to a person before Him. How can I say that so it's more clear? You don't start out with a good standing before God. You have no standing before God. You have no standing in this courtroom. Leave. But when you trust in God, He gives you a standing of righteousness so that you can be before Him and not be displeasing to Him any longer. We don't deserve it, but the text says God accounted that faith of Abram to Abram for righteousness. That means the means of this right standing is what we call imputed righteousness or accounted righteousness. How can a person be right with God? Only through trust and the accompanying righteousness that God imputes to that person's life or account, if you will. Abram was not perfectly righteous, was he? You remember he lied about his wife? He'd probably been involved in idolatry earlier in his life. So how did God make him an unrighteous person into righteous, one with a righteous standing? God took his own righteousness in Jesus Christ. In advance, you know, this is before Jesus died, lived and died for our sins, and reckoned it to be Abram's own, even though it was not. That's the, that's the marvel of accounted or imputed righteousness. This is not God's attribute of righteousness. He can't really share that with anybody. But what God did was consider and treat Abram as righteous, as if he were in Christ, even though he was not, in fact, a sinless person. Now, God could do that, rightly and justly, without pretend. You know, it's not just like God said, okay, righteous. We'll just write down that and we'll just pretend that's the case. This is not pretend. He took the sins of Abram and laid them on the shoulders of Jesus Christ when he came to die for Abram's sins. That wrong was justly disposed in the death of Christ. Therefore, Abram stands righteous before God with nothing blameworthy to account his account because that, all that blame has been taken away. Christ's righteousness is imputed likewise to the believer, not in the sense that he's treated as actually having done you know, Jesus' mosaic law-keeping conduct, but that his standing before God is, is perfect, is shared to us, which standing was proven when the Lord conducted himself perfectly here on earth. Now, I know that's a mouthful there, but what I'm trying to say is that the righteous standing that Christ has, which led him to conduct himself without fault in this world, that standing is shared to you if you believe in Jesus. Do you process that? That is incredible. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. 
This is all written about Abram. But I want you to listen to what Paul says. Romans 4, verse 20. It says, He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Now, of course, we understand. He had his moments. Just like we have our moments. We have our moments of doubt. Even lengthy moments of doubt. How could God do this? Or why would he be this way? And he, and he, you know, and Sarah too, you know, she hears, we'll see coming up, the promise, and she's like, yeah, right, I'm going to have a kid. No way. They got over that. And in the end, it could be said to them, they did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform Listen, are you fully convinced that what God has promised to you, He will perform? Therefore, it was accounted to Him for righteousness. This is Paul's uh, inspired commentary on what we just read in Genesis 15. But I want you to listen to this. This is tremendous. Now, it was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him. Look at verse 24. But also... For us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. This stuff in Genesis 15 is not just for historical interest, it's not just about Mo, or, uh, Abraham, it's about you. That if you share that faith, you too will have the righteousness of Christ imputed to your account. And if you're a Christian here today, realize it or not, that has happened to you already. That's the only reason why you can appear before God in heaven someday. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And He gives us that freely by faith, that standing before Him. Now, of course, that standing is going to work out and ought to and has to work out in our righteous conduct as our lives go on and we become more mature in the faith. But it's not that conduct which earns us the right standing. It is the right standing earned by Christ that is given to us. We have to be very clear-eyed about that. Now, we're going to close with the last verses. And I know there are a lot, and you're thinking, how is this going to work? Well, let's, let's dig in again just to Genesis 15 and see about God's unbreakable promise. Another critical idea here in this portion. The Lord speaks again to Abram in verse number 7, and he says this, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two. Wow, did you expect that? Down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. I think they were maybe too small for that, maybe one bird on one side, one on the other, dead, of course. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now I want you to listen. This is a little bit of a mysterious passage here. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it shall come to pass, I'm sorry, and it came to pass, when the sun went down, and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. you know what that is? That's a theophany. That is an appearance of God passing between those animal parts. I'll explain in a moment. On that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he lists ten tribes of people that 
were going to be within you know the kind of their tribal uh, or city states and stuff that was going to be the area that that Abram would have as his promise. So the Lord speaks with Abram and identifies himself as the one who brought him out of Ur to the land that he would inherit. And Abram asked for assurance of this promise. Now, I you know sometimes you could say, prove it to me. You can hear it in the attitude, like, I don't believe what you're saying. But you can also come with tears to God and say, God, I need assurance. I'm not sure what your word means. I'm not sure how this promise applies to me. I'm not sure that I'm saved. I need assurance. And so you can come to God with that snarky attitude and ask for assurance, or you can come to God with a good attitude, with tears, with concern, with angst in your soul, and, and ask him not out of challenge or, or uh, some kind of severe doubt, but a genuine need for assurance. You too, you too probably crave assurance in your relationship with God. Wouldn't it be nice if God would just meet with you and give you an assuring, you know, hug around the shoulders and tell you that you're His? Of course, assurance, that's it as an important question. It has a multifaceted answer, but there's one major part of the answer given in this text that Abram received from God. And the narrator tells us now in verses 9 to 21 that God enacted a covenant ratification ceremony with Abram. And he did so in accordance with the traditional fashion in the ancient Near East. How do you do that? Well, and by the way, he did it in the traditional fashion except with one twist, one very important twist. And we'll come to that in a moment. So in the typical ceremony of this sort, two kings maybe making a contract or covenant with one another, they're going to have a covenant enactment ceremony in which they're going to make formal this promise with one another. It's like signing on the dotted line, only it's more serious than that. In the typical ceremony, animals would be split in two pieces. The covenant parties, say two men who are making this promise to each other, would walk between the pieces. You have one half of the, of the heifer over on this side and one on this side with a walkway in between. And then the goat and the other animal, and the bird, and the, and the other bird. So they're making a, a walkway for you. They're, they're laid out in that kind of walkway. And th- what this does when you walk through the pieces, making this covenant, is you're signifying that you agree that you would be killed just as those animals were if you failed to hold to the agreement. If you broke the covenant, you're saying, kind of like kids would say, I remember on the bus, it's going back and forth to school. They'd say some crazy thing, and, it, you know, I promise, I cross my heart and hope to die. That kind of hope to die idea, like, it's like, you know, this is a for sure promise. It, always, it wasn't always that, but anyway, <laughs> you know, the kids uh, change their mind later and, and don't hope to die, but... Um, So that was the idea. I will perform this oath on penalty of death. So for this ceremony, Abram prepared the animals, a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, five in all. The the, the birds were too small to split, but the others were laid out in the traditional fashion, one piece opposite its other piece with space between them. The Lord did not initiate the ceremony until some hours later, it appears, because the pieces of animal were laying there so long that what happened? The carrion birds started coming down there. You know, the vultures are circling up there and they're seeing these animals and, and smelling them perhaps and they're able, you know, trying to come down and eat them. So Abram has to drive them away. And then evening came and the sun descended below the horizon. And Abram fell into a sleep. And here's the twist. Because of this, and I think this was a somewhat supernatural sleep, he was unable to participate in the ceremony. And the text tells us that he felt a great horror and darkness. It was a nightmare, in a way. I mean, how would you feel if God came to you and said, your descendants are going to be enslaved for 400 years. 
They are going to be harshly treated in a bondage that is just unimaginable. Abram, one of the richest men on earth, the one promised blessing by God, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and your descendants are going to be slaves. I want you to think of slaves in the way that you naturally think of slaves. Chattel, beaten, demanded service like they were in Egypt, we see in the book of Exodus. Your descendants are going to be, that is a horrifying thought. But then the Bible says, but God will judge those people and the descendants in the fourth generation, probably fourth by Abram's length of life, not by our, you know, a generation to be 25 years to us. Well, when you live to 175, a generation looks a lot longer than 25 years, doesn't it? They were there for those centuries. And they came out with great possessions voluntarily given to them by the nation that had oppressed them. Remember the Egyptians in Exodus? They're like, look, take our stuff and get out of here. We just lost all of our firstborn. We're done with you. Leave. But listen, even though they received some of their wages that way, the nation of Israel could never receive all of its dignity back. For the generations, the millions perhaps, the hundreds of thousands at least of their compatriots who died in slavery over those centuries. Abram heard God tell him that he would die a good old age and the nation would return to the land of promise once the sin of the Amorites was fulfilled. That's a whole other issue, very interesting. God was permitting the Amorite peoples, all those Perizzites, Canaanites, Kenites, and all those, all of them to persist in sin. He's given them 400 more years. You know, that is God, isn't it? He's long-suffering, waiting, giving plenteous opportunity. Nobody's going to be able to say to God, God, you gave me no opportunity. You gave me no chance. You gave me no time. Nobody will say that to God. And then in verse 17, the appearance of God in the form of a smoking oven and a burning torch passes through the pieces. His presence lighted the darkness of those initiatory sacrifices. But Abram did not walk between the parts of the animals. Why? This symbolizes that the covenant was lopsided. It was lopsided. God guaranteed the performance of the covenant regardless of Abram or his descendants' faithfulness to it. God obligated himself to the same fate as the dead animals if he did not carry it out. Thus, we could say with the author of Hebrews in a different context, by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. He made certain the promise that he gave to Abram. This is a sign here, this lopsided nature, the one passing through the parts, not both parties. It's a unilateral grant from God. That one-sidedness is a sign that this is an absolutely irrevocable covenant of God. No matter, you know, some theologians today look at the circumstances and they say, well, God's done with Israel. I don't know how I can say in stronger terms that is so wrong. If God is done with Israel, then your salvation is not sure, my friends. God is not done because his promise, he's he's obligated himself on penalty of death that he will keep this promise to the nation of Israel, to Abram for his sake. And by the way, this is about the Abrahamic covenant. Part 7 of that covenant is all the families of the earth will be blessed in the seed. How are you blessed? In the seed of Abram, aren't you? You're actually kind of connected to this covenant whether you know it or not. A marvelous thing. So it doesn't matter what it looks like, theologians or people from outside, you know, looking at the circumstances that we perceive from our limited vantage point. This is an irrevocable, utterly irrevocable covenant that God has made with Abram and the nation after him. The covenant is thus sealed. It's officially made between God and Abram. He promises the land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates River and all the peoples that reside there at the time, they would be under the control of Abram's people, the Israelites, in time to come and ultimately forever. We come now quickly to a conclusion. Back to your question about assurance. How can you know that if you trust God, 
that he will ensure that righteous standing to you forever. How can you know that if I believe in Christ, I will be made righteous before God? I want you to think about as much as he did for Abram. Promising to die like the animals that were split in two if he did not keep the covenant. What did he do for you to ensure that your righteousness would be sealed? He did even more than he did for Abram. He didn't walk between two pieces of animals in darkness. He sent his son to actually die to seal our redemption. He is the one who walked among sinners. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was with those who sat in great darkness, Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, and had seen a great light. He was the one who came a little bit brighter even, I think, than a smoking oven and a fire brand in Genesis 15. He came as the light of the world. John 8.12. He died alone. Nobody walked through the pieces with Christ. He by himself purged our sins by his death. We do not participate in the manufacture of our salvation. God went through the pieces by himself. Christ paid our sins by himself. No help from me. I did not participate. I only believed. And God imputed righteousness to me just like he did to Abram. Thanks be to God. The most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham prays. For his mercy endures forever. Heavenly Father, it's my prayer this morning that every soul in here would see the wonder of that truth that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He did so and gave a ransom his, himself. He died in our place, and we thank you for that. God, take this truth, this irrevocable promise made to Abram, which contains in it a clause relevant to us and then unfolds into the wondrous work of Jesus Christ on the cross to make provision for our salvation And Lord, may it resonate in our hearts and may you take it by your spirit and change us, draw us close to yourself, grant us anew the wonder of salvation and perhaps even today the first time that wonder, in Jesus' name, amen.